welcome to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, the podcast where we lift the lid, bust the myths and explore the incredible history of the First World War. I'm Dan Hill, a military historian and battlefield guide specialising in the history of the war on the Western Front. And I'm Dr Spencer Jones, author and senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. In this episode, we'll discuss the king of the battlefield, artillery. We'll look at its role in 1914, its growth and adaptation throughout the war, and its ultimate emergence as the dominant force on the battlefields of the Western Front. Hello again, Dan. Always a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. And today's a particularly interesting topic from my perspective, because we're looking, of course, at the artillery, a subject of enduring fascination for me. And of course, also one of my jobs, because as well as being a lecturer at the University of Wolverhampton, I also work as the official historian for the current Royal Artillery. And part of that role is always looking at the past as well. And I know also the use of artillery in the Western Front is a subject of interest to you as well. It is, Spence. Yeah, good afternoon. But uh, I should add to this, I'm definitely not the official historian of the Royal Artillery, so there will be a distinct difference in knowledge levels today. However, it is important. I think it's important for a number of different reasons, and there's lots of things we can draw out, because artillery quite literally changes the face of battle in the First World War in a number of different ways. And, you know, we are talking briefly just a minute ago, Spence, about how we're going to attack this subject, so to speak. I guess the best way to do it is just to wind the clock back and start on the eve of war in 1914. I mean, what does the artillery look like? Let's say, go from a British perspective, at least at that time. So this is a, an aspect of the war that's often forgotten. We think of the First World War in terms of trenches, machine guns, barbed wire, tanks and aircraft. And we recognise the technological advances of tanks and aircraft and even machine guns to an extent. But we tend to forget that artillery was also undergoing a real technological revolution in the years just before 1914. And guns had come on in leaps and bounds in a relatively short space of time. The breakthrough gun was actually a French artillery piece, the 75, 75 millimeter gun, which was the first what's called quick firing gun. And this meant it could fire, provided the crew could keep loading it, at an incredible rate. Perhaps as many as 12 75 millimeter rounds in 60 seconds from a 75 gun under perfect conditions, and certainly even under battle conditions, a single gun could get off between six and eight rounds within 60 seconds. Although you couldn't sustain this, just that burst of fire would be enormous. And the introduction of the French 75 around about 1900 forced every other European artillery to reconsider their own artillery branch. And the British artillery, the Royal Artillery, was no exception. The Royal Artillery would be going to war in 1914 with three field pieces, the 13-pounder gun, the 18-pounder gun, and the four-and-a-half-inch howitzer. And the 13- and 18-pounders fought with the cavalry and the infantry, respectively. The four-and-a-half-inch howitzer, howitzer, of course, designed to deliver plunging fire, a shell that could fly high up in the air and then drop into a trench attached to the infantry. And there was also a small heavy branch for the Royal Artillery, the Royal Garrison Artillery, which was bringing 60-pounder guns into the battle, although in very, very small numbers. And I think what's interesting, Dan, is that these type of guns, they're quick firers too, just like the French 75. These type of guns had not seen action on a large scale up to this point in history. The French had introduced their 75 en masse around about 1900. 
the British and the Germans had copied with their own slightly inferior versions, the 18-pounder for the British, the 77mm for the Germans. But nobody had actually fought a war where these guns that could deliver this massive rate of artillery fire had actually fought one another. And so nobody quite knew what to expect in 1914. Yeah, I suppose if you, if you roll the clock back as well, I mean, really, the numbers that we're talking about, in fact, the numbers of artillery pieces we're talking about in the Great War, nobody's ever dealt with. But if you go back 100 years and you think of artillery and the kind of role that it played at that time, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, for example, you know, we're talking enormous armies of perhaps uh, 50, 60, 70,000 men might have two or 300 artillery pieces with them. In that case, you know, there are certain things that can be done, but the distance involved is a few thousand yards. In 1914, everything changes. It's not to say it changes immediately, and no doubt that's something we'll cover as we, we go throughout this story. You know, 18-pounders, as you say, 77s and 75s can fire roughly the same kind of distance. They do roughly the same kind of damage. But the, I think the real big game changer as far as artillery comes is... One, as you say, the volume of fire that can be put down. And secondly is the distance. Mm. Because distance is a real new dimension on the battlefield. No longer can men be walking around behind the lines two, three, four miles away beyond line of sight. You know, if you get a 60-pounder dropping a company-sized formation marching along a road, that's going to do some serious damage. So actually, the artillery really starts to play a part behind the battlefield at this point. You know, the idea of 100 years before, perhaps a ball skipping a few extra 100 yards over and maybe hitting some rear areas. Now, I mean, these guns can disrupt things way, way further back. So to my mind, at least, Spence, I think distance is, is one of the big things that comes out in 1914 that really nobody's, nobody's really given as much consideration as perhaps they should have done. This is very, very true. And just to go back to the, the French 75, this, this revolutionary gun invented in the late 1890s, every other European army trying to play catch up with it. The longest range fire it could deliver was about 11 kilometers with a single shell. And this is not a heavy gun. It's a field gun. It's classed as a field gun. Heavy guns, of course, like the 60 pounders the British were bringing, could fire even further than this. And you're absolutely right, Dan, that right up until the American Civil War, 2,000 yards of fire was considered very long range for artillery. You know, it's over a mile. You're going to have to really observe that with binoculars. Your chance of hitting something in an actual land battle at 2,000 yards with an artillery piece, you know, pretty limited. You might make them duck. Unlikely you're going to cause a lot, of, a lot of damage at that kind of range. But in the First World War, and in 1914, 2,000 yards is absolutely killer range for artillery pieces. And remember how fast they can fire. While we were talking, I just very quickly double-checked what was the, the highest rate of fire recorded uh, in training for the French 75, and they could get it up to 15 rounds a minute, potentially being delivered at 10 kilometers range. That is a rate of fire and a distance of fire and also a weight of fire because these are, these are big shells relative to what had been being fired in the American Civil War or even the Franco-Prussian War. They're heavier shells, fired faster, fired further, and there's a lot more artillery pieces to fire them. And that really creates a deadly environment. If you are visible to artillery in 1914, you are in extreme danger of being smashed by it. And it's something that all the armies learn to their cost very, very quickly. Just ridiculous thing about that is it's almost comparable to a, an infantryman with a bolt-action rifle. can do 15, perhaps 20, perhaps 25 
rounds a minute of of 303 or eight millimeter fire you know doing this with an 18 pounder field piece is just uh it's just mind-blowing to me but you know you can understand as well why artillery in the way that it does and particularly in the numbers that it appears in really post 1915 changes the battlefield in a, in a huge way I think just to to roll back and go, to go to the artillery simpletons like myself, Spencer. I wonder if we can just just set out the stall in terms of what artillery is and what it does in 1914 when it first appears on the battlefield. Because previously, back in the Napoleonic Wars, we're talking about field pieces, smooth bore, firing fairly low trajectory, round shot with no explosive charge in it. If you're lucky, you then might get a howitzer that can fire a shell over a shorter distance, which has got some kind of dispersing effect. You even get mortars. Now, we see all three of those in the Great War, but all three of them in a very different form. We do. And Artillery 1914 is, in some ways, all being driven by what the French have done with their 75. Can't emphasize enough to you listeners what a revolutionary gun the 75 is when it's introduced in 1898, French completely rearmed with it by 1900. Every other artillery in Europe tries to copy that gun and then has to consider, well, how do we deal with guns of this quality that can fire so far and so fast? And the German response, the British response, is driven by that 75. And the idea behind these guns, the French again driving this vision, the British and the Germans in some ways copying it to an extent, is what you're going to do is you're going to draw up your artillery, perhaps 5,000 yards away from the firing line, maybe a little closer, and you're going to deliver what's called preparatory fire on a position that you're going to attack. And you're going to do that with two, possibly three types of guns. You're going to use your guns. Now, there's a difference between a gun and a howitzer in 1914, and really it's to do with trajectory. A gun is going to fire on a relatively flat trajectory, whereas a howitzer is going to fire on a much more vertical trajectory. They're designed to do different things. Guns are really designed for battles against the enemy where the enemy is in the open and you can fire at them on a relatively flat trajectory. You can still fire over your, the heads of your friendly infantry, but generally you're firing on a horizontal. Howitzers are designed for dealing with fortifications, including trenches, or strong points, or things that are just a bit difficult to crack. The advantage of a howitzer is it flings its shell into the air and then it plunges down. And this, of course, if you're dealing with fortifications, trenches, it can drop into the trench and inflict potentially very, very heavy damage. And the idea, certainly for the British and the Germans have, is to use guns and howitzers in combination and cooperation. You'll use your guns that are firing on a flat trajectory to pin the enemy down, suppress him, keep him from moving, the shells bursting all around him, and you'll use your howitzers to dig him out of his defensive positions. You can also, of course, use your artillery against the enemy's artillery. You can fire against it, with your shrapnel and your high explosive. And this discussion brings us neatly onto the difference between shrapnel and high explosive. Primarily, guns will be using shrapnel in 1914, and howitzers will be using high explosive. In fact, for the British, the British don't have a high explosive shell for their guns. They only have it for their howitzers. Shrapnel, invented in the Napoleonic Wars by, of course, a British artillery officer, Henry Shrapnel, is essentially a shell that bursts in midair and it scatters hundreds of small metal pieces. It's absolutely devastating to infantry in the open. It's, it's like a giant shotgun that bursts above you or just in front of you. And these metal pieces come howling down. Any one of them will inflict very severe and often fatal wounds. 
a really powerful weapon, and especially when you have hundreds of guns firing at a very rapid rate. High explosive, as the name implies, is a shell designed to explode when it hits something. So whereas shrapnel, you want it to burst in the air so the metal pieces plunge down. High explosive, you want to explode when it hits something. You can burst it in midair. It's not really recommended. You really want to hit something with it. Have it hit a trench or a strong point or a fortification. Ideally, it will really smash into that and then detonate with a high explosive. The Germans really are the masters of high explosive ammunition in 1914. It's interesting they've actually really put a lot of time and effort into developing high explosive, partially as a way to counteract the superior shrapnel fire of the French 75, but also because they recognize they're going to have to deal with a lot of strong points and a lot of fortifications, both on the Eastern Front, especially on the Western Front, where they're going to be invading France and Belgium. And this is another aspect, a revolutionary aspect of artillery, I think that's worth mentioning, Dan. And this is the interaction between artillery and strong points. It is indeed, yeah. And we'll come on to that in just a second, but you've just reminded me of something else whilst we were talking there, a really powerful story of, of something that I picked up a, a few years back. I was very fortunate to take a, a family over to the battlefields and we actually went to a place called Shrewsbury Forest, just on the outskirts of Ypres in the footsteps of a great uncle, uh, this young man by the name of Walter Flanders, who was in the line for the very first time. He'd been he'd been in France about three days, rushed up towards the, the end of the First Battle of Ypres, took up the line in Shrewsbury Forest, and it was a single German shell that collapsed the entire front edge of a, uh, of a I say, trench. It probably wasn't that early in the war. It was probably an unrevetted ditch in the ground. It actually buried an entire section of men, killed nine of them including this young man who'd been on the battlefield for less than 48 hours. And it just reminded me how devastating this was in 1914 and why, in a way, it actually forced trenches to evolve. And quite simply, artillery forces evolution because if you don't have a prepared position, they've been told to, to lean against the front edge of this ditch in order to defend. We know this from the lieutenant, the platoon commander who survives, says, I told the lads, lean against the front edge of the trench here. And of course, shell doesn't have to strike directly. Big heavy shell like that just collapses the trench and kills these lads entirely. Um, you know, but I suppose linked to that in some ways in terms of how artillery changes the face of battle, uh, a great example would be looking at the very, very earliest stages of the war, really the almost the first shots fired on the Western Front. Because those of you guys that have studied 1914 before will know that, of course, the Belgians have really anchoring their entire national defence on what is called the National Redoubt System. And that's turning several of their major cities, the key one being Liège, a uh, second, secondary one being Antwerp, into highly defensible positions by using strong points, which have got big heavy guns in, which protect in a ring of forts around a city. Now, this is cutting edge stuff in about 1913. This is absolutely cutting edge. Cannot really be breached, except... In 1914, it is basically made obsolete overnight because the Germans bring out a super heavy gun, a Krupp gun. I think, Spencer, will correct me if I get it wrong, but it's 42 centimeters, I think, 420 mm -hmm. millimeter gun. And it can outrange basically any gun in these in these forts. And once you get to that point, all you've got to do is just be able to figure it out. It's like a, a boxer's reach. You know, if you can punch from a little bit further away than the other guy, then you can hit them all day long and not get hit because these are static defensive positions. So rolling a Krupp gun to just within the Krupp gun's range, but just outside of the fort's range, you can pummel it to pieces at your leisure. 
And this is a really big thing that happens in 1914. In fact, really from that day forward, I would argue, artillery dictates the battle space, how it looks, why it looks how it does. And really everybody on the battlefield is going to be affected by this. This is absolutely true. And one thing I think we've forgotten now in the 21st century is what a shock it is when these fortifications in Belgium are smashed into oblivion by these super heavy German guns. And the same fate will befall Russian fortifications in the East, in Russian Poland, for example. And that completely upsets the balance of war in Europe as it's understood, because Stretching right back to the 1600s, fortifications have been such a key feature, especially in Western Europe, anchoring your defences on fortress lines that were using the design concepts of the 1600s. And overnight, they're basically, they've become extinct. It's a dinosaur moment. Like the asteroid has hit the earth and it has made fortifications that have dominated that part of the world for 400 years extinct. And there's worse to come because fortifications, fixed metal and steel, concrete and steel fortifications cannot survive these bombardments. They're useless. So you're forced to fight in the open or at least forced to fight for your battles. But artillery is so devastating there, as you said, Dan, that very quickly it becomes apparent if you are fighting in the open and the enemy has artillery on you, you are going to suffer immensely very quickly. The rate of artillery fire is so vast, so intense that as you've, as you've, made clear of that powerful anecdote. Infantry cannot survive this artillery fire unless they dig in. And we discussed previously on the Trenches episode that in, it's a response to gunfire and machine gun fire, which it is, but it's also a response to artillery fire. Our, one advantage of a trench is it gives you a certain degree of protection, especially from shrapnel. If you built your trench properly and you've got your head down in it, your chances of being killed and wounded by shrapnel are relatively low. Not impossible, but relatively low. Chance of being killed by high explosive, well, it's high if it lands in the trench, but it's got to land in or near the trench. And in relative terms, a trench is a relatively small target for an artillery piece, especially if lots of them are firing at once and they can't really observe their, observe their fire. But it's really significant that as the battles of 1914 go on, British, Germans, and French very quickly learn that attempting to fight in the open Against artillery, you're really going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. And for the British, the learning moment is the Battle of Le Cateau on the 26th of August, 1914. Fascinating battle we discussed in the Mons episode. British turn and fight against the pursuing Germans. But the British don't have time to construct a defensive position. And as a result, the British line gets very badly hit by German artillery concentrations, which are basically out of range of British response fire. And this also is a feature of some of the French and German battles. The Germans suffer immensely trying to advance against French 75s at the Battle of the Marne, for example. So it means by about September 1914, when you start to get trenches appear, they're really driven because infantry just need to get their heads down away from this constant artillery fire. and It completely reshapes the battlefield. It does in, in a number of ways as well. And even if you go to the battlefield today, a little, little tip for anyone that's making a a quick visit out there, you can always figure out, even if you find a trench, you've got no further context about it, you can always find out at least which way it was facing. And the way you can do that is you can find any dugouts or bunkers or any surviving things like that. They're always driven towards the enemy. So they'll be on the leading edge of the trench. The one thing you absolutely don't want to happen in your dugout in the First World War is to have it facing backwards, i.e. have a trajectory whereby an enemy shell could enter it. 
So these are always dug in towards the enemy. So in a very literal sense, it changes the shape of the battlefield. But there's also other elements that are brought in here as well. And, and Spence, you can give us your argument on whether this is an artillery piece or not. But of course, because of this idea of trajectory, you know, field pieces that they're, they're fantastic in counter battery work, they're fantastic in various other things, infantry in the open, howitzers arguably much more, much more powerful, much more deadly. Then, of course, we've got mortars coming in now. And mortars, I think, are really interesting because, of course, they fire not very far, but on a very, very high trajectory. And they're ideal for dropping things into trenches. And I think one of the, the fascinating things that I find about this, Spence, is when we talk about how mortars evolve on the Western Front. I remember reading recently about the 2nd Division, how in 1915, you get the mortar men that will turn up and they'll be using uh, Stokes mortars, toffee apples, these kind of things that we see. They'll come in, they'll set up in somebody's trench, section of trench, they'll fire off a mortar into the enemy positions. Pretty visible, actually. Um, they'll cause absolute devastation in those trenches and then they'll disappear. And I remember reading an account from an, from a, an infantryman in the front line who said they absolutely hated these trench mortar guys <laughs> because whenever they turned up, they knew what was going to happen. They were going to fire a mortar from their section of trench then they're going to disappear, and 10 minutes later, the poor infantry that's left behind is going to get absolutely hammered by German artillery in response. But even the evolution of this process, Spence, is, is really interesting. There's the idea that because these mortars are visible, later on there are points where you'll get 10, 15, or 20 mortars fired at a slightly different trajectory, all at the same small section of line. And the idea there is you're just inundated. You, yes, you can run away from these. They're moving that slow. But if you fire enough of them, you're going to run into somebody else's somebody else's mortar round. Mm. And mortars are a fascinating component of the artillery. In the British Army, the heavier mortars are handled by the artillery and the lighter mortars are handled by the infantry. But one thing the British find, and the French indeed, find in 1914, as the trenches begin to form in September, October, and as they then last over the winter, is the British and the French find their really poorly equipped with mortars. In fact, the British don't have a mortar at all. There is no mortar available to the British. The French turn to old fortress mortars that date from decades earlier and start bringing them out of mothballs. But the Germans do have a mortar, the Minenwerfer, the mine thrower. And these mortars are a bit of a revelation in trench warfare because they've got a number of advantages over the regular artillery. Once the trenches are formed, the artillery is quite a long way back. You don't want them right next to the trenches. If the trench gets overrun, your guns will get overrun. But what you can do is you can use mortars, relatively small, relatively portable, although different size mortars are, are of different weights and different ease of transportation. But the key thing with mortars is usually the observer has got a very good view of the enemy trenches firing at. And he's relatively close to the mortar too. These mortars don't have huge range. They'll be pretty close to the trenches, as you've made clear, Dan. And so they can see what they're doing. And that's a big advantage, especially in 1915, because the artillery, as it's gone to war in 1914, has not completely anticipated just how long range the fire will be. And this goes back to a point we made right at the start of the podcast. These guns find themselves firing at very long ranges in 1915, they don't have good observation of what they're firing at. Ideally, you'd send your forward observation officer out and he'd have a telephone and he'd find a position where he can see the enemy target and he can relate to you in real time what, what's happening. Are you hitting it? Is the visible damage? Are things moving? Are there other targets, etc.? 
But in reality, and this is especially true of the Allies and especially true of the British, the disadvantage that that type of system has is that the forward observation officer usually can't find anywhere where he can see anything useful or interesting because the British are stuck on the low ground and the Germans have got the high ground. And so actually delivering accurate artillery fire becomes really difficult. I think we'll get onto that in a moment. Whereas at least with mortars, you're a bit close to the front line. You can actually see what's happening. You can shout about the fall of shot without using a telephone. And of course, they've got this plunging fire that drops into trenches. And they are absolutely, they're devastating. Uh, and it's a real shock. I'm reminded of a quote from the first Welsh. And they had their first experience of coming under Minnenwerfer fire in 1915. And they remember they're packed in a trench. This is 1915. The trenches aren't really as well designed as they'll be later. And an officer remembered, the enemy opened up with Minnenwerfer shell. The men were so congested, it was simply not possible to get out of the way. When one of the shells lands in the trench, men in the vicinity simply disappear. And that's the effect of a high explosive mm. shell plunging into a, a densely packed trench. And, it, and indeed, many of the evolutions of trenches, which we've previously discussed, are as a way to deal with this kind of high explosive fire. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's absolutely devastating on the battlefields. I recall uh, reading a, a book actually fairly recently by a man of the name of George Gregory. Uh, it's from a place called Chorleywood in the same county that, that I'm from. And he rather powerfully says in, uh, I think it's in the middle of 1916 in the sector in around uh, just south of the Labasse Canal, he talks about the two other men from this little village that he comes from. And he says that they're, um, it's actually there's a father and son. The son is survives, the father is killed. And he says, because I was from Chorleywood and the son wasn't able to, I was asked to uh, conduct this funeral. He says, uh, nobody who hasn't been out there will never understand the, the depths I went to carrying a shoebox full of remains to this man's grave. And it just goes to show you, I mean, absolutely annihilates positions. Just, just people just disappear. Um, and you can imagine there's a, I think, I know we've covered this already, Spence, but there's an, there's an element of real bravery involved in just being there within this range. Because of course, this can, in effect, be a completely random act. And that's maybe one of the powers of artillery in some senses, in that it can happen at any point, at any time. You could be walking down the street in Bethune when you're in reserve. You could be in a frontline position and get hit by a mortar shell. You could be moving back away from the period of the front lines. You know, artillery is quite often very active when enemy troops know that guys are moving in and out of the line because you've just got more guys that you might be able to hit. I mean, there's something, is there a psychological power of artillery that comes about in the First World War that we don't really see prior to that? There is, because as you made the point right at the start of the podcast, Dan, for the first time in history, artillery can now reach very deep into enemy positions. Whereas before Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, with a handful of very odd exceptions, you're going to basically be able to see the gun that's shooting at you, and the gun is going to be able to see you. That changes completely in the First World War. Now you can be hit miles away from the front. You can be, as you say, marching to and from somewhere and there's suddenly you're caught in a bombardment. You can be uh, sleeping in your dugout far behind the lines and uh, an enemy shell crashes into it. It's, it's frightening because suddenly you're not safe anywhere and there's that psychological wearing effect. Men expect to be in danger when they're in the front line, but to be in danger not only in the front line, but also in the rear areas, has a wearing psychological effect. And of course, both British, German and French 
all take advantage of this, and nighttime bombardments on rear areas are a common feature to disrupt, to deny you your sleep, to make it difficult to move. We mentioned previously a lot of work gets carried out on the trenches at night, so there's lots of people actually moving around at night, and you suddenly open up on them, give them a 10-minute bombardment, give them a bit of a hammering. It's it's very grueling and tiring, and it's for this reason, of course, that things like the Mon Star awarded to British soldiers who fight in the first campaign of 1914. The qualification for getting the Monstar is you had to be within enemy artillery range at some point during this campaign. That's quite interesting. You don't have to be in the front line, you just have to be within artillery range during this battle because artillery will kill at long range. People do get killed, wounded, um, shocked at distances far beyond the front line. And it reminds me of a conversation that I was recently involved in uh, about did Douglas Haig ever visit the front line once he'd become commander-in-chief? And the evidence suggests he actually didn't once he was commander-in-chief from late 15 onwards. But he certainly got within 5,000 yards of the front line, and that's well within artillery range. And it would only need one lucky German shell, or unlucky German shell, to come flying in, and that's the end of your commander-in-chief. And so there is no safe area, and that is completely new in warfare. We've No war has had this feature, and it's a... Uh, it's a defining factor of the Western Front that it's not just about the trenches. It's also about the areas behind the trenches. The battle is being fought both in breadth along the Western Front and in depth in the areas behind it. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I wonder, you know, as we kind of evolve with the story of artillery as we go through this, we're, a number of the things that we're covering right now have almost got a, not necessarily a defensive, but perhaps a, a, a more passive feel on the battlefield, being fired over long ranges and not necessarily used to lead attacks but rather than the than to disrupt or force the enemy to do something you want them to do and they don't particularly want to do themselves but in another sense of course artillery has another role and that really emerges in 1915 some cases for better some cases for worse and that's using it as a as an arm of breakthrough i say breakthrough with a kind of pinch of salt here because break in might be more appropriate breakthrough might be a different question at all but it comes back to that old trifecta spence which is machine guns artillery and barbed wire and one of them technically can be defeated by another certainly artillery can do real damage to machine guns um way outside the range of machine guns can do damage to it but barbed wire that passive defensive measure can also be subjected to artillery fire which in some cases can be very effective now, the problem that really the Brits faced, particularly in 1915, I think, and this is something that, that maybe you can shed a bit of your expertise on here, is one, the number of shells, and secondly, the quality of them. Are they good enough in the early part of the war to do the job that's required of them? So this is an interesting point because it's got resonance, I think, for the world in which we find ourselves in today. The armies that go to war in 1914 expect it to be violent, expect to be bloody, expect high levels of ammunition expenditure, but they all expect it to be short. And all of the ammunition, whether it's British, French or German, is built on this assumption. But of course, the violence of 1914, this intensely bloody four months between August and December, very quickly shows that these estimates are way, way too low. All armies, even the Germans, who've got a very big artillery supply stock, exhaust their artillery by the end of 1914. They just don't have the shells. So many get fired that everybody's rationing their shells by the end of 1914. And of course, the war is going to go on into 15. So everybody's trying to tool up their industries. The British and the French have a particular advantage. They can go abroad and just buy shells. 
both the British and the French go to America and buy artillery shells made on contract over there to ship them to the Western Front. But the problem with this very rapid expansion is you can't improvise an arms industry overnight. And the British Army's arm industry in 1914 is absolutely pitiful. To give you some idea, listeners, about how backward it is, the British British engineers, British industry has not built a howitzer since 1910. That was the last time an order for howitzers were placed. It's been four years since they've even built a howitzer. Ammunition that they produce is produced at a very low rate because the army doesn't expend much of it. And all of a sudden, the war breaks out and the government goes to, the, goes to its industry and says, produce us as many shells as possible. Well, the problem with that is you're going to get a real drop in quality. And it's the same in America, too. These factories get set up to take advantage of British and French orders, but they don't have the expertise. They don't have the staff. They're overpromise on what they can deliver, and they churn out shells that are not of a high quality. And all armies suffer from this to an extent, but the British and the French, and especially the British, probably suffer from it more than most, because Britain is going from an absolute standing start with its artillery production, its ammunition production. And in 1915, the rate of failure, duds or blinds as they're known, is absolutely huge. Perhaps as many as one in three shells in 1915, just fail to explode. They'll fly out of the gun and they'll never detonate. They'll just plummet into the mud somewhere. They still find them today. Um, even if they detonate, often the detonator isn't quite right. It doesn't give a proper detonation so the shell doesn't explode properly. Ammunition is poor throughout 15 and even to six into 1916. Uh, even in, at the Battle of the Somme, perhaps one in, uh, one in five British shells fails to explode. And there's even an intriguing idea that's been put forward what would have happened at the Somme if the British had had more reliable artillery. But it's a lesson that in an industrial war, you just can't improvise industry. You have the guns, but actually producing the ammunition for them is really, really difficult. And there's going to be a race, in fact, between the British and the French on one side and the Germans on the other for who can produce the most shells and also who can produce the most effective and efficient shells. And that's, of course, taking place away from the battlefield. But as we know, if your bombardment in 1915 doesn't have enough ammunition and the ammunition it has is misfiring at a rate of one in four, you're not going to get an effective preparatory bombardment at all. Yeah, and that's going to be really that's going to be really important when we look at a couple of major actions in 1915 in particular. New Chapelle, uh, the Battle of New Chapelle, which takes place in March 1915, does actually have some success. In fact, there is a fairly successful artillery barrage in the early part of that advance. One of the reasons that that is successful is that the Germans don't have any real depth to their trenches at that time. In fact, one of the lessons they learn out of this hurricane bombardment of something like 20 minutes that drops onto the onto the German lines is what well, we need to have a, a deeper defensive system, actually. We can't just overstack the front lines because if we do get saturated by large quantities of artillery, it's going to be a real problem. And when the next attack comes in a month later, when, or a couple of months later, Orbers Ridge, really over the same ground, the lessons have well and truly been learned by then. That's from a defensive point of view. The problem is on an offensive point of view, they absolutely haven't been. The Brits have figured out in New Chapelle, oh, we need more shells, we need more shells. So what happens at Orbers Ridge? Well, they've got less shells. The artillery is less effective, but the Germans have recuperated, figured out they need more depth, and as a result, Orbers Ridge is an absolute bloody failure. I think 
in terms of casualty rates, is about the biggest disparity you find in the British Army in the entire First World War. There are about 10 British casualties to every German one. Absolutely horrendous failure. And then by the time we get to the Battle of Luce in 1915, yes, quantity is improved, but quality is still an issue. And this is something we're going to see again and again on the Somme. But Spence, just to, to go back briefly, I wonder if we can, I think we can probably do it on this podcast, just get a little bit geeky about some of the detail when it comes to artillery here. One of the things I find fascinating is the mechanics, actually. And, and in fact, you've got to say the brains involved from artillery gunner's point of view in terms of making a shell land and hit exactly where you want. And you could take this, I mean, you could go to naval gunnery and talk about ships moving on a moving sea and windage and all of this kind of thing. There's a lot of things that need to be considered from a gunner's point of view in terms of getting shell from muzzle A to target B. There's a lot to it, isn't there? There really is. And this is a mathematician's war. And in fact, somebody even described it as an astrologer's war because there's so much reading of atmospheric conditions during this. And it speaks a little bit to the way that artillery is expected to fight before the war because all armies have anticipated there's going to be long-range fire and that there's going to have to be some way to direct that fire so you doesn't just fire randomly into an area you can't actually see. But of course, the actual conditions of the First World War show that that fire is taking place at longer ranges than even was hinted at before the First World War. Really long range. And the further away you have to fire a shell, the more atmospheric conditions it has to deal with. It's going to be dealing with gravity. It's going to be dealing with the weather conditions. It's going to be dealing with the wind. It's even going to be dealing with the rotation of the Earth as it flies through the air. So if you want accuracy, you have to carry out some very serious mathematics. But the problem with those very serious mathematics is you can only carry them out if you have the data to inform them. If you don't know the weather conditions, if you don't know the wind speed at 6,000 feet in the air, if you do not know the speed of the rotation of the Earth, you're not actually going to be able to input any of this. And so the artillery changes. And the fact that it's in a relatively static position allows it to go through this change. You're not so worried about galloping into action or redeploying or so forth. You can actually stop and consider this. But the artillery becomes more and more and more technical through 1915 as it is trying to plot and plan all this. And it is this real group effort whether it's the Met Office giving you accurate weather readings and pressure gauges, whether it's British observer aircraft actually photographing or reporting on the presence of German targets, or whether it's the artillerymen using the maps that the stationary officers provided them so you can actually gauge where your shells are falling. It becomes this very, very complex team effort which requires skills that have been anticipated prior to the war and are not completely lacking. But what they are short of is the sufficient number of officers and experts who can do this on the scale that's required. And we talk a lot about the new army in Britain, this enormous volunteer army who stepped forward between 1914 and 15. We tend to think of them as infantrymen, but of course the artillery is full of new army men as well. And you might well have joined the, the, um, the artillery as you've just chosen to do it for some reason. Perhaps you're good with animals, perhaps you like the heavy machinery that's involved. And you get to the front and you find out you've got to become a mathematician overnight. And I'm actually reminded of one of my own great-grandfathers who was a foundryman before the First World War. He ended up in the Royal Artillery and fought on the Western Front from May 1915 to the end of the war. And I've often wondered, what did he make of this, the mathematical elements of artillery fire? Because it is, in, in many ways, a mathematician's war at this stage. And 
fascinatingly, so many devices and pieces of equipment get invented to improve the mathematical performance of artillery. Because if you can do the maths, then you can get the shells on target. And we start to see some real innovations emerging really towards the end of 1915, but becoming more and more apparent through 60. Yeah, if we if we take this back down to its basic level as well, what, as you've been describing there, what I find just incredibly interesting is this idea of how these elements join up and influence one another as the war develops. Because of course, as we've discussed many times on here, you know, the, the ultimate race to the parapet, the, the if you boil it down to its absolute bare bones, is can I get my guys across no man's land before the enemy finds out what's happening and starts firing back at us, whether that's with artillery or machine gun or whatever it might be. One of the real big positives and one of the aces that the attacker usually holds or let's say traditionally holds is surprise. Now, if you can surprise your enemy and you can attack at a time they're not expecting to, you to or a place that they're not expecting it to happen, all of a sudden your chances of getting across no man's land without getting machine gun to death are going to go up. Now, there's a couple of other problems here, though. So if you're going to do that, first of all, you've got to break the enemy barbed wire. You cannot get through barbed wire, big, thick rows and rows and rows of this stuff. You also need to be able to neutralize the enemy artillery, soften up their positions, and then even create those conditions that allow an attack to happen. Now, in order to do that over long distances, you've only got one weapon you can use, and that's artillery. And surprise, surprise, if you bombard an area with thousands or tens of thousands or perhaps even millions of rounds, the idea of surprise is going to go out of the window because you know that something is coming. So this is where artillery is absolutely vital to the story. So what kind of methods do you employ? Are you going to now use a hurricane bombardment and try and rush your troops up behind it? Are you going to try a new kind of bombardment? Are you going to change tactics of the artillery itself? How can you be accurate enough if you're going to employ those? You've got to include things like barrel wear. How many rounds have been put through each barrel? So you need the confidence of those troops to get close to it. And it brings out some fairly new ways of using artillery on the battlefield, albeit Spence, they've got some pretty major flaws at first as well. That they have. And just as you mentioned about hurricane bombardment, so we, we just go back a little bit to those. The British used one at Neuve Chapelle, fire for about 35 minutes. They've secretly brought all their artillery into position then open up unexpectedly on the German line, take the Germans by surprise. And for a time, it looks like Neuve Chapelle is going to go really well for the British. Germans, of course, very tough, resourceful. They recover uh, and actually stop the British breakthrough. Then the British try and repeat the trick two months later at Ober's Ridge. And this time it's going to be a 40-minute hurricane bombardment. As you've said, this time the Germans have built up their defences very, very uh, much more strongly than at Neuve Chapelle. The British hurricane bombardment, it's less of a hurricane and more of a gentle breeze, unfortunately. There's almost no damage to the German position and it turns into a total disaster uh, for the British and Indian attackers. But that causes the British army to switch. It abandons hurricane bombardments. It just can't generate enough firepower from them. Clearly, the German defences are too strong. You need to really hammer at these. And so the British copy the French because when the British are launching their attack at Obers on the 9th of May and it's turning into a disaster, the French are launching a successful, albeit very bloody, attack on Vimy Ridge. And the French attribute their success to a prolonged bombardment that goes on for days to really soften up the German line, to smash that barbed wire, suppress the machine guns, wreck the trenches, as you've so, uh, so well expressed there. The problem the British have is twofold. One, they don't have enough firepower to do this in 1915. 
And then by the time they get enough firepower to potentially do this in 1916, the problem is, how do you actually distribute all that firepower? Because this is the sort of the devil's game, really. It's like an awful game of rock, scissors, paper. If you concentrate all your fire on the enemy barbed wire, well, probably you'll cut it. But that's no good because the enemy's machine guns and artillery will smash you as you try and get across no man's land. If you put it all onto the machine guns, well, that's no, no good. Your infantry gets stuck on the wire and get killed by the artillery. Put it all onto the enemy artillery, well, you can see what happens. And so the British start to divide their fire and start splitting it. And what actually happens is they don't do enough damage to any of these. They don't do enough to cut the barbed wire, suppress the machine guns, or knock out or even and silence the German artillery. And there's another factor, too, that emerges at the Somme. And this is, OK, so your preparatory bombardment is designed to do this. What does the artillery actually do once the battle begins? How does it fire in support of its infantry? And this is something where there's definitely contrasting approaches at the Somme. The Somme works well, and some just doesn't work at all. So, yeah, Spencer, of course, 1st of July 1916, the opening day of the Battle of the Somme is, uh, I mean, incredibly bloody. There's no two ways about it. Artillery has obviously played a big part in the week before the attack is launched. Quite often we talk about the Battle of the Somme launching on the 1st of July 1916. Of course it doesn't, because the artillery is the launch of the battle, which goes on for a week before. But over well over a million shells pummel into the German front lines, with the idea being here that artillery is going to quite simply conquer the battlefield and that the infantry will come across and occupy it. Now, as we know, that simply doesn't work, and for a number of reasons. Most of them you've just highlighted there. Still, we've got that lack of quality of shells. We've got reels and reels of barbed wire that can't be cut. Talk about perhaps the, the famous uh, fuse upgrade coming in shortly. We've got Germans dug in deep and dug in well. And this comes back to that, that mindset that really comes about in 1915. The thing that I find really frustrating about the Somme Spence as far as relying super heavily on artillery is that none of these none of these problems which come together to cause this awful day none of them really are a great surprise mm. Mm. this is true and in fact there's one of the tragedies i think of the royal artillery at the somme is for the first time from the british perspective in the first world war it actually has a, a serious mass of artillery it spent 1915 basically fighting a poor man's war, using guns that they've dug out of storage that have been mothballed since the Boer War, constant shortage of ammunition in pretty awful positions. It's been an absolute nightmare for the gunners in 1915. By 16, for the first time, the Royal Artillery can fight a war on the same scale as the Germans and the French. It's got over a thousand artillery pieces, well over a million shells. It's got more firepower than it's ever had in its life. In its existence, in fact, and yet it's, it ends up not making the most of these. And there's various reasons why it doesn't. Part of it is due to the planning of the Somme, which insists it divides its fire. I'm sure we'll cover that in a future episode. We looked at it a little bit during the Somme episode we recorded previously. But it's also because of this point I made previously about artillery is a very technical service. You need all this mathematical knowledge. You need all this expertise. And the artillerymen at the Somme in 1916 are very inexperienced. Some artillery batteries have never had a chance to fire a live round out of their guns before they take part in the artillery barrage at the Somme. When you combine that inexperience with ineffective shells, as I say about one in one in uh, sorry twenty percent of British artillery shells at the Somme misfire. Inexperience means inaccuracy, inadequate shells that aren't bursting against incredibly 
powerful and well-built German defences, you've got all kinds of problems. And crucially, the artillery is thinking in a almost a binary term. Whereas in 1914, all armies, to an extent, wanted to fight in a style we call fire and movement. You would move whilst part of your army was providing covering fire. And that would include artillery. By 1916, the Royal Artillery is thinking a bit differently, and, and the British Army is too. They're thinking, well, fire, then there'll be movement. So the bombardment will smash the German lines, then the infantry advance, then we'll do something. And actually combining infantry advances with artillery fire is almost in its infancy in 1916. In some parts of the summer, the 1st of July, the artillery fires what we will later know as a creeping barrage, a barrage that moves across no man's land and advance the infantry to provide some covering fire. But in other parts of the Somme, the artillery can't do it. Actually, firing a creeping barrage is a very technical act. You need a lot of accuracy. You need skilled gunners. You know what they're doing. Otherwise, your creeping barrage might either outrun the infantry, it just races off in the distance, they can't keep up, or even worse, it might start falling short and hitting your own infantry instead. So some parts of the front, guns just can't do it. They don't have the skills to do it, and so instead they use lifts, which you've alluded to earlier, Dan. They'll fire on the German front line until the attack begins, then they'll move to a more distant target to avoid friendly fire. But very quickly it's realised, well, that's a disaster, Artillery needs to keep firing throughout the attack. Otherwise, the Germans will just come to the parapet. They'll be unimpeded. Uh, they'll get the machine guns on the advancing British or, or French, for that matter, and they'll mow them down. And this, the next development, the great development, I think, in artillery is going from just being able to hit targets at a long distance to instead, how do we fire in support of our infantry? And this is where creeping barrages will slowly and painfully, but eventually come of age. Yeah, and I think when we're, we're talking about this, the amount of emphasis we can place on this, I don't think it ever be too much because it, it really is going gonna, is gonna to change the face of battle in a number of different ways. I think one of the, the underlying factor, I think, here, from at least from my point of view, Spencer, what you said here is accuracy. And I would say accuracy in a different way, though. You could almost say rather than accuracy, you could say confidence. Because it, it's not how accurate the fire is, it's how confident the guys who are going to be very close to it think it's going to be. Because this is the, the primary problem. As you've just pointed out, the idea of firing ahead of infantry is you know, is fairly well known. You fire ahead and then when they get close, you move on. And hopefully that gap, and this is, this is the real danger point in, in the Great War in terms of race to the parapet or the idea of breaking in and through enemy trenches, is the gap that exists. How long is it going to be between the artillery moving on and your guys getting to the place they, where they need to be? Well, in some cases, if that's a minute, two minutes, three minutes, that could be too much. But if your guys can get really close to that artillery, in fact, really on the opening day of the Battle of the Somme, the only place in the northern part of the Somme battlefield that sees success is where trench mortars are used at very short range to fill in that gap that you get with the main artillery firing that gap that we've got of a minute or two is filled in by trench mortars basically dropping shells directly onto the German front line, allowing men of the 36th Ulster Division to cross that and get into the enemy positions. About the only place where there's real success on the opening day. Now, as the war progresses and information improves and quality of not only the, the shells themselves, but the guys firing the shells improves, confidence is going to grow because there's less drop shots. There's less opportunities for guys seeing these horrific results of friendly fire. You know, if you're in an infantry company and you see 
five or six of your guys hit by your own barrage a couple of times, next time you go over the top, you're not going anywhere near that barrage, which has got some major problems associated to it. But if you start to see shells delivering on a more accurate line on a more regular basis, that confidence grows. That gap shortens and all of a sudden areas that can't be got into just might be able to. This is very, very true. And quite quickly, and the British and the French are learning this more or less simultaneously in 1916, because the British at the Somme, the French down at Ver the intense fighting at Verdun, creeping barrages, these moving barrages that advance in front of the infantry become really pivotal for how battles are being fought in 1916 into 1917. And they're difficult for the defender to counter because it becomes very difficult for you to man your parapet when you've got a mass of shells just constantly bursting over your head. Trenches provide you some protection, but to shoot at the enemy, you have to have some part of you, even if it's only a small part of your head, exposed. And when you've got hundreds, thousands of shells bursting over you, it's very difficult to deal with that. It's also intimidating to actually see that barrage rolling towards you, and you know it's going to hit you. And very quickly, the British and the French start to experiment with variations of creeping barrages, ones that will roll over no man's land and stop on the German trench and just keep pounding it continuously until eventually the attackers arrive. The reverse creepers, which roll over the German trench, and then they roll back to try and catch the defenders as they man their positions, and all sorts of variations in between. And in fact, the Germans in 1916 on the Somme are really stunned by the power of creeping barrages. And German intelligence isn't sure how the British are delivering them. They think they must be being delivered from aerial observers who are monitoring how close the infantry are to the barrage. Now, there is some of that done, but there's not that much of it done because it's really dangerous to actually fly an aircraft that close to a barrage. And if you're really high up, you just can't see where the infantry are relative to the barrage. In fact, it's being done through that mathematics, through that trigonometry we've discussed. And a lot of painful lessons get learned. At first, creeping barrages are too fast and the infantry can't keep up with them. The barrage disappears and the infantry are left exposed. Later, they're much slower and you cling to the barrage, you move slowly forward. But it's done through these very skilled gunners using this very advanced mathematics. And by 1917, creeping barrages are, are remarkable things. I'm thinking particularly of the Battle of Arras, the opening of the Battle of Arras in April 1917, where there are there's not just a rolling barrage, a single line moving forward. There are five or six lines of creeping barrage moving independently of one another to sweep over the German front to catch both the front line, the German rear areas, and everything else in between. This is firepower on an industrial scale, Dan. Yeah, and as I said earlier, I don't think you can overemphasize the importance of this. But a lot of this, if we go back to this idea of confidence really quickly, just from really the perspective of the guys on the ground, as, as incredible as this can be and, and you know as effective as it can be without the confidence of understanding that you can get to within 50 or 60 yards of that without getting a shell dropping short and then hitting amongst your platoon – there's a real limitation to that. And I think, Spence, one of the, the major things that we see that comes about really in 19, uh, 1917 and into 18 is the idea that people can start registering their guns and understanding their individual artillery pieces, what their performance is and what it's going to be when finally they fire off a round. Now, of course, this is going to result in some kind of element of surprise being lost. If you fire a round or you prepare your bar bombardment into an enemy position, 
some element of surprise is going to be lost. Now, the perfect world, though, as far as artillery and infantry are concerned, is infantry being able to advance behind a well-directed, accurate screen of fire whilst maintaining some element of surprise at the same time. That's the, that's Surely that's the gold standard. But how exactly do the Brits get even anywhere near that? Again, it's all about the science of artillery. And when we think of artillery, we just think big guns firing, you know, recoiling. We've seen the video of this. We've seen the video of the crews laboring, sometimes you're sweating and shirtless to get the shells in. But what you're not seeing is the officer sat at his desk with trigonometry tables filling in basically forms that are going to dictate how the gun is fired. And it's all about maths and it's all about precision. And it's all about this battle for who can get the best information to direct the fire of their guns. And both sides are fighting this technical battle on how to do it. And interestingly enough, both the British, the Germans and the French are all starting to arrive at the same conclusion about the same time without telling one another about it. And just to zero in on the British side of this, the Royal Artillery has been thinking through 1917 that it's, it's basically reached the pinnacle of its ability to destroy things. It can deliver such huge bombardments that it can turn the Western Front into a moonscape. And we've seen those photos taken from above where Everything recognisable has vanished. Roads, trees, trenches, houses, all gone and just replaced by an endless crater field. But the problem with that, and we discussed this in the Passchendaele episode, is the Germans survive this bombardment and then they start defending the crater field. And the artillery's got nothing to shoot at. You can't really target individual shell holes when there are thousands, tens of thousands of individual shell holes. And furthermore, the infantry attacking across those crater fields, it's muddy, it's broken, it's very difficult to advance, it's very difficult to maintain cohesion. And certainly by the, sort of the autumn of 1917, the Royal Artillery's got itself in a something of a difficulty in that it can destroy everything in front of it, but that doesn't help the infantry to advance anymore. It's destroying the ground too much. So the response to this is, well, maybe if we delivered less fire, fewer shells in relative terms, but we delivered them with surprise and we delivered them with accuracy. And that's, of course, the origin of what comes to be known as shooting from the map or alternatively, an unregistered bombardment. And this is only possible in 1917 because of all the technological and mathematical expertise the artillery has beat up, built up, I should say. What it does in essence is a Targets are determined from a mixture of aerial photography and the maps that are produced as a result of that photography. The guns are put into position but don't fire any ranging shots. Instead, they fly to the shell, the barrel wear, the conditions are all pre-plotted very carefully. And by late 17, you can get those so precise and so accurately, you can be very sure they're going to work. And then when you're ready, you launch all your shells at once. Nobody's fired a ranging shot. Everything has been pre-planned using mathematics beforehand, and you can achieve surprise for the first time on a large scale, probably since 1915. And that's, of course, leads to the Battle of Cambrai. Most famously, we think of this as a tank battle, which it was, but it's also an artillery battle because the British artillery bombardment opens up with no warning whatsoever and takes the Germans completely by surprise. Yeah, Cambrai is a, is a great one to look at, I think, in a number of ways in terms of innovation. So... What I find is perhaps equally interesting is just what the Germans are doing on the other side of the wire, not a million, not a million miles away and, and not too far in terms of time either. So that's going to come back in the early part of 1918 and 
really bite the Allies hard. And it's going to be, uh, I think it's it's currently actually being tested about this same time out on the battlefield. But just coming back to the, the British idea, Spence, and uh, when we're talking about artillery in general, I think one of the things that we need to consider here as well is is the actual volume of artillery that we're now getting on the Western Front. I mean, it's big enough, and by 1918, it's going to be a completely different story. But even with these huge volumes that we've got, and Cambrai is a great example, which gives us a great first day success, but isn't really sustainable for various different reasons as the battle moves on. One of the things we need to consider about this volume is it's going to get less as you get big breakthroughs. There's about a six-mile advance made at Cambrai, where all of a sudden you can start outrunning your own guns, and you've got to bring guns up. Well, what are you bringing them up over? Well, you're bringing them up over the same ground you've just bombarded. All of a sudden, the heavies are not going to make it up. The light field pieces might, the medium field pieces might, but you're not going to have anything like the same volume of bombardment in the subsequent days. And of course, we've discussed so many times here, one of the constants of the Western Front is the Germans launch counterattacks. Now, if you go five or six miles away and clear your own bombardment, Germans are going to counterattack. You've got nothing to counter them back with. So this is one of the major issues we get. And by 1918, we'll see a way that people can get around that. But just the idea, I think, generally, Spence, of, uh, of bombardments, um, and Canberra being a good example, the Somme being another good example as well, is communications is still a big problem here at this time. Whilst you can set these plans, you can get the ball rolling, you can get very inventive with things if you've got enough time to prepare. And we see this time and again on the opening days of battles. Arras, Cambrai, for example, both of those are key examples here. You can get very clever at first, but as soon as things start to go wrong or you start to lose your barrage or you start to encounter defensive positions that you hadn't accounted for, all of a sudden you can't just call back your artillery and say, oh, hang on a minute, let's hold that up, let's bring it back, let's deal with this point first. This is a pretty major issue that we see time and time again on the Western Front. It is, and it's one that the armies work so hard to try and overcome because what we'd now call reactive fire, a fire that's delivered at a surprise target, as you say, Dan, you've broken through, you've cleared the enemy trenches, but what's this? There's a German company has got itself in a really good defensive position in this wood line. We need some artillery fire on it. How do you get that message back? And all armies, British, French, German, experiment with all sorts of ways to do this. In 1915, British troops are meant to lay down arrows, in fact, big white arrows on the ground that air observers can see. And these arrows are meant to point towards targets. Of course, it doesn't work. And who wants to advance across no man's land with an enormous white arrow strapped (laughs) to your back? I certainly wouldn't. Um, In 16, there's really, really intense attempts to try and get Royal Flying Corps observer aircraft to direct fire. And that has some success. But as we've discussed in the air episode, these observers are being attacked themselves. There's a lot of pressure on them. There's never quite enough of them them either. And they're being used for lots of different duties. There's signal flares are probably the most effective. The British distress signal is the white-on-white flare. And if you release that, then there should be some artillery brought down to support you Within, within minutes, seconds even. But of course, it's got to know where it's firing at, and that's difficult for it too. And through 17, there's not really a system where it can be done on a very large scale. The closest the British get to it is during the latter stages of Passchendaele, when they implement this bite-and-hold system, where the infantry advances a very short distance, stops, and then lots of artillery is poured onto the German counterattack. But the key there is the infantry is only advancing a short distance. 
If you want to go further into the enemy position, you will outrun your artillery and you won't be able to communicate with them properly. And here we see, I think, one of the sort of tensions in artillery that although there are some experiments with artillery that's mounted on vehicles and motorized vehicles, none of them really work. Apart from rail guns, which are, are quite powerful but are, are very limited in number, you're still reliant on towing your guns around, mainly with horses. Yes, there's some towing of artillery pieces using trucks or even tanks, but not that much. And so you've got all this technical know-how. You've got all this incredible range for artillery, the incredible firepower it can deliver. But once there's been a breakthrough, how are you going to get those guns up? Well, it's a Mark I horse, just as it was in Napoleon's day. Except guess what? The gun weighs many times more than a Napoleonic cannon, and the ground is completely churned up and, and is completely wrecked. And it's, this is one of the reasons why breakthrough is so elusive in the First World War. It's just so difficult to provide firepower for the infantry once the initial fire plan is over. And in fact, that, that won't really be mastered until 1918. I suppose we can come into combined arms really at this point, because I think there's, at least from my point of view, anyway, there's, a, there's an important thing to consider here. And that's really if you go from 19, let's say early 1915, right through to the you know, the early part, middle part of 1918, the one thing that you're going to need to employ without fail if you want to break into the enemy positions, let alone break through it, is a large proportion of your artillery on the enemy leading positions. So on their front lines, on their wire, on their support lines and their communication trenches leading up to that. All of a sudden, that burden, to a certain extent at least, seems to be removed in about the middle of 1918 because we've got tanks in big numbers here which in a sense have got their own artillery support, certainly mail tanks with the six-pounder naval gun, we're not just relying on artillery smashing away into a frontline trench anymore. In fact, the less guns that you can dedicate to that role, the more guns you can dedicate to another role, which is going to allow you to break through further in the line. Let's say you've got 100 guns. In 1916, you need to use 90 of those in order to break into the enemy positions. You might use 10 for counter-battery fire. I'm taking numbers at random here. But by the middle of 1918, all of a sudden to break into an enemy line with the other tools you've got at your availability, you might only need 50 of those guns, which gives you 50 more to do something else with. Well, if you've got 50 spare, what are you going to do? First of all, you're going to obliterate the enemy's other batteries. You can counter battery fire, clear, clear the field completely. And now you can start chewing up areas that are going to be a problem once you get past that first line. You're going to start chewing up reserve positions, logistics hubs, support areas that all of a sudden, once they're neutralized, the chance of breakthrough, not just break in, goes up through the roof. And this is something that we see in 1918, Spence. It is. It's the artillery reaching the pinnacle where it's not just about completely annihilating a position. It's now about precision and purpose as well. And something that's really an asset for the Allies, especially in this period, is improvements in shells. We alluded earlier on, we didn't allude, we discussed earlier on that um, Allied shells, especially British shells, very, very poor through 1915 and 16. By 17 and 18, they've improved a lot. And there's been the introduction of a piece of technology that is absolutely pivotal to the Western Front, a specialist type of fuse, the 106 Grays fuse, which is introduced in 1917 by the British. And as the name implies, the graze fuse only needs to graze a target for the detonator to trigger and the shell to detonate. And this is a breakthrough. 
Because one of the problems the British and indeed the French and indeed the Germans have had is how do you breach this maze of barbed wire in front of you? And generally, it's done with shrapnel. You try and burst shrapnel above it and hope that the shrapnel pieces cut through the barbed wire. And very, very time-consuming, very ammunition-consuming. Or you just fire high explosive at it. The high explosive tends to bury itself in the ground, detonate and just throw the barbed wire up in the air. Graze fuse means that when a British shell brushes against a barbed wire belt, it detonates, it's high explosive, and it vaporizes huge chunks of the German barbed wire. And it it doesn't render barbed wire useless. Barbed wire will be used right up until the, the very last shots of the First World War, but it greatly diminishes its effectiveness. Whereas those huge belts of barbed wire that existed on the Somme, and indeed are still seen at the Hindenburg Line in 1918, had been absolutely a nightmare to get through in 1916. In 1918, if you haven't got any artillery firing, then barbed wire is still a problem. But if you can deliver 106 graze fuse fire into barbed wire, you'll cut it quite quickly. And that means, as you say, Dan, you need far fewer guns for that important duty, which means you can dedicate a lot more to smashing the enemy trench and carrying out counter-battery fire, trying to silence the enemy's artillery, which is, a, of course, a huge a huge purpose of artillery too. And so artillery starts to be freed up from the need to carry out these very, very grueling, ammunition-intensive, and it has to be said, not always effective bombardments just to breach the barbed wire. Now it can blow through that barbed wire relatively quickly with a high degree of success. And that's a, that's a huge breakthrough. And because there's less barbed wire across the Western Front, there's more mobility We've discussed on previous episodes, 1918, the battle's getting semi-mobile. You've got movement, German stormtroopers, allied tanks. And what we start to see in 1918 for the first time since 1914 is guns galloping into action. In both the German spring offensive, German artillery comes galloping up. And indeed, in the Allied 100 days, you get American, French and British batteries galloping into battle a la Napoleon. And because the ground isn't as smashed as it was in 1617, the trenches are breaking down, you can actually have this. And you start to get this. It's, it's actually a shock for the artillery. They're out of their fixed positions. They're out of their dugouts. And they're, they're moving around. And they're having to deliver fire um, on the hoof, effectively. You gallop into a position, skid, out, skid to a halt, you know, Mud goes flying, get the horses away, get your guns into action as fast as possible, just like they'd done in training before the First World War. And the fact that they can do this, and they can do it well, and the Germans do it well, the Allies do it well, I think is testament to how good the artillery has become as a fighting arm by 1918. It can deliver the huge bombardments, and individual batteries are capable of fighting in quite a, a dashing and daring style. Although also, it has to be said, a very bloody uh, style of fighting and German and uh, British artillery casualties in 1918 are actually quite a step higher than they were in 17 because the gunners are in much more exposed positions. But it's it's just a fascinating maneuver round that it's gone from this style of warfare. It's gone through the very trigonometry, mathematic, technical heavy, and then in 18 you need those old skills again. And fortunately for both armies, they still have them in abundance. Yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel to draw, really, in the fact that in 1914 to and then again in 1918, you've got the same guys doing the same thing that they were effectively doing four years earlier. It's worth mentioning there's also a domino effect here. I think you, you said it really well there, Spence, when we were talking about breaking the artillery and having a graze fuse. It means you've got to deliver more uh, less shells to the ground to have the same effect. 
Less shells to less ground means your ground is less torn up, which means you can get across the battlefield quicker. So all of these things really help as far as as far as that goes. The one that I find really interesting from a, going back, I think, to maybe just the gunner's point of view, quite simply here, is as we sort of come to the end of this one, 1914, you've got those, you imagine those 13 and 18 pounder batteries in the retreat from Mons in 1914, you've got to stop and fight to the last man and the last horse at Lakato. You've got the same, in fact, probably the very same battlefield they're going to be charging across in 1918. Just how different was that gunner in 1914 to the same guy four years later who's now charging in the other direction back across the battlefield? Uh, that's a great question because although the equipment is the same, the British continue to fight with 18-pounders, 13-pounders, four-and-a-half-inch guns that have been used in 1914. The scale, the quantity, the speed, the use of supporting arms, not least aircraft that are directing the fire through radios, through wireless, is just a step beyond. And this, there were, of course, gunners who fought through the entire First World War. And you can actually read some of their accounts. They're stunned by how different the artillery is by 1918 and how much more intense the artillery is. By the end of uh, the First World War, the British Army has more men in the Royal Artillery alone than it had in its entire army in 1914. The scale is just unbelievable because this is a gunner's war. And it's the gunners, ultimately, are by the side because the Germans are, have also got a very powerful artillery arm that fights extraordinarily hard uh, throughout the war. It's the gunners who really set the tempo of war and fight it and direct it. And that's not to take anything away from the courage of all the other arms. But without artillery, without artillery performing effectively, without artillery learning and developing, no, neither side would have won the First World War. They'd have just been stuck there for you know, 10 years, not let alone four and I think it's testament to just how well the armies develop and how willing they are to embrace new technology and new ideas that we have the artillery completely revolutionized, really, from 1914 to 1918. And I'd argue, in fact, that this, this marks a, a, a change in the nature of war for all wars to come, that something happens in the First World War, we move away from the Napoleonic-style paradigm of war to a new style of war that is based around artillery and firepower and attacking deep into the enemy's position that begins in 1914 to 18. Yeah, and I'm sure all of us listening to this can can draw a line at least in terms of this kind of idea of a mobile battle group and bringing in your having your own fires which can support these uh, these unit advances. It's uh, it's remarkable how that's born in 1918. We really do see it with individual batteries being detached to infantry brigades and being used in that that breakthrough role and having, a, if you like, a sense of autonomy as well, not only in terms of what they can do, but the fact that they they do actually have the ability to carry it out. It's remarkable. It brings me, I suppose, back to this idea, Spence, in perhaps more true of 1916 and 17, this idea of artillery conquering and infantry occupying. That's one way of looking at it, I think, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this. But the big question I think we want to leave you and, and perhaps you listeners with is this one. Was artillery the real war winner? Mm. It's it's a great question. It's a million dollar question. And uh, listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts. So drop us a comment about this or drop us an email. From my perspective, and I suppose I'm biased because I work for the Royal Artillery and have done for a decade now. So I, I tend to see things through the prism of the of artillery, but I think this is a gunner's war 
And I think it's the artillery that in the final equation is going to decide victory or defeat. But I caveat this and say artillery alone cannot do this. And perhaps the British in 1916 to an extent in 1917 get carried away with the idea that if we just completely destroy everything, then the infantry will be able to walk through it. We've all heard the stories from the 1st of July on the Somme about the infantry being told, you're just going to be able to march into the German trenches. We've blown them to smithereens. We've bombarded them so heavily, there's nothing left. Uh, one quote sticks in my mind is, there won't even be a living rat in the German trenches when you arrive. We've hit them so hard. And clearly that's not found to be true. Ultimately, and this echoes the episode we did about tanks, what's really key is combined arms. If you just fire a massive artillery bombardment, well, that's not good enough on its own. If you can fire a powerful and coordinated bombardment and this allows your infantry to move, well, that's very successful. Then you add tanks into the mix, more successful still. And I'm reminded of a quote that's attributed to a German officer during the 100 days who gets captured. And he says, if you attack with infantry, this is that he's referring to the British. If you attack with infantry alone, we'll always beat you. If you attack with infantry and artillery, we'll beat you about half the time. If you attack with infantry, artillery, and tanks, you always win. And I think that's the lesson of the First World War. These are, we've talked about the trinity of trenches, barbed wire, machine guns, and artillery. Perhaps the trinity of combined arms, artillery, infantry, and tanks. But of those three, no matter how good your infantry and tanks are, unless you have the artillery, you can't do it. So I'm going to stick my neck out and say, this is a gunner's war, and it's artillery that's the real cutting-edge technology in the First World War. There we are. There's the official word from the official historian of the Royal <laughs> Artillery who's done a good job, and I'm sure we'll continue in that post for many years to come. Excellent. Well, do you know what? It's been fascinating for me, Spence, as, as somebody that's not an expert on artillery, rather just a, a keen observer to, to hear your take on, on this particularly obviously vital part of the story of the Great War. I know so many of us with with relatives that were, I think, very proud to be seen as members of the Royal Artillery. I never met him myself, but I, I had someone in my family who was always known as Gunner Tom because he'd been in the Royal Field Artillery in the Great War right up until his, he was died in his about his 90s, but was always known as Gunner Tom. And I think the, the pride that a lot of these uh, ex-gunners show gives an idea of the fact that you know they were a big part of the the engine room of the the British army on the western front so fascinating to, to share that story and to learn about the story of artillery in the great war today it's always one that we uh, enjoy to discuss so huge thank you to you guys for coming along and joining us we really look forward to seeing you next time out do please remember just drop in a quick review or let us know um, if there's any subject that you'd like to see us cover in the future We've got a few lined up, which I think will be interesting. I'm sure we're going to do one on, actually do one on barbed wire in the near future, Spencer. <laughs> Could be great fun. So there we are, guys. It brings us to the end of today's podcast. Hope you have a great one. We'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, a Battle Guide production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Battle Guide YouTube channel, where we regularly release documentaries exploring some of the most famous and extraordinary episodes from throughout military history. If you'd like to support the Battle Guide team to create more content just like this, why not head over to our Patreon, where for the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can get access to full-length virtual battlefield tours, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, decide which subjects we cover in future podcasts and videos, and join a fantastic community of like-minded people. That's all this time. See you again soon. 
firing high explosives. Sorry, I'll do that again. <laughs> <laughs> I got that completely wrong. I was looking at something about high explosives there and I read it in my own mind. 